experience. Um, I find that um, this is a verse I've been thinking about for a while, and I like to take a verse from the Bible and just chew it for a good season. It may never be anything, a message or whatever, but it's just for my own life. Um, Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we have this <sighs> default. We think God's thoughts are this, and my thoughts are not that far away. So we tend to lean on our own understanding more because we think my mind is not so far from God. We think the good is close to God. That's right. And we don't say that, but because of our moral conscience and our moral base, we think that good is not so far from God because we underestimate the depravity of man. And most guys that don't believe in that doctrine are the ones who think that my thoughts are just a notch below God. It's not so far away. So I'm, willing to, I'm more willing to settle for my thoughts because I think my thoughts are not so far. It's like, okay, I can, buy, I can buy the Kroger brand or I can buy Raisin brand. But Kroger brand is pretty much the same as Raisin brand, normally from Kellogg, so it's not that different, right? It's still raisins and sugar and, and flakes. But really, when you look at the verse Isaiah 55 8, God's thoughts are as far from our thoughts as the East is from the West. They're so far, we want to revenge our enemies. God says, love them. Our thoughts are so far that any thought I think that's not God's thought is diametrically opposed to God's thought about situations. Which is why it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it talks about reconciliation. Only the spiritual man can reconcile correctly because he has God's mind. Without God's mind, I will reconcile somebody else according to my mind, which is so far from God's mind. I mean, it's crazy far. As far as to hear the Timbuktu and farther, that's how, from here to eternity is how far my mind is from God's mind. So any situation that I think about, if I think about it without God's mind, I'm wrong. Mm. A.W. Tozer said, every thought I think is wrong until, I, until God corrects me. Every thought is wrong. Every thought. And can I, can I believe that? That I, in my mind, everything I think is wrong outside of God's mind. And it's not this close, it's this close. So when I look at what's happening right now, if I'm thinking with my mind, my mind can be distracted and influenced. Um, America, I always say this, I've lived overseas for most of my adult life. Um, I've always found our country to have two major challenges here. We have a lot of distractions and a lot of options. Two things America offers. A lot of just, we have 26 types of cola. Think about that. We're like France with its cheese. We have a lot of options here. You, you go, you, you, what color would you like that car in? Would you like two door or four door? I can give you 17. In Africa, it's just a car. Yeah. Take it, enjoy it. You go to the, you go to the gas station, there's four types of pe- gasoline. We, we, Africa, okay, is it diesel or it's not? It's that lead. It's, 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 that's it. So, yeah, you, I, I watch American kids. What would you like for dinner tonight? Uh, they're not asking that in the third world. They're just like, this is what is dinner? Is there dinner? That's the question. It's a, it's a question mark. Is this dinner versus what is for dinner? Like, we have options here. So uh, I think uh, the challenge in this country for us as Christian Americans is I think this is the toughest country to live in because of those two issues. There's no option, no country gives a, its citizens more options than America. We give you a ton of options for everything, everything. And then there's, because of that, invariably that opens up distractions because the very options that we have distract us. Um, distractions, I mean, uh, I believe our gospel has been polluted by distractions. Yeah. 
of everything that has happened to us and around us, there's a bias. There's a bias in our gospel because we've been distracted. Um, we haven't made the main thing the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the church has been asleep at the switch, which is why when there's been social economic upheaval in our country, the church has been strangely quiet. I get asked by my friends that are in other, uh, other religions all the time, why is the church not saying anything about that? How come the Christian church is quiet about that? Mm-hmm. I said, because we're so distracted in infighting, right. number one. We're so distracted by personal positions, number two, that we, we, we lost it. We, we, we've lost our unity through, through, um, through individuality. We've, we've misplaced 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and sacrificed individuality for unity. So I was telling Pastor Shell, I said, there's two categories of this age that are happening right now. The first one is a divided nation and an isolated church. Mm-hmm. An isolated church. Um, believers feel abandoned. They feel separated. They feel, in some cases, divided. They feel quiet. Nothing has quieted the church like the pandemic. Science and social issues, the two SSs, science and social issues have shut the mouth of the church. We are quiet. We're whispering, actually. Whispering. Um, so no one's talking about missions. Somebody said to me, a pastor, are you crazy? You're going out doing missions? Yeah, yeah. Said, Why would you do that? You should be hunkered down at home and praying. I said, I said is that the gospel? Is that, what, is that what Acts 1-8 looks like? Is that Matthew 16, 15? Is that Matthew 28, 18, and 19? Is that what your Bible reads? I, I said, when you read Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but do it the more. Last I checked, they had the plague when that was, they actually had leprosy when they were talking about don't forsake yourself together. First century church had people that had been exposed to leprosy, and they had service. So don't tell, if they can survive leprosy, I think we can survive corona. Tell me, because, tell me uh, don't let the cancel culture cancel God. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it's interesting to me. But anyway, I, I think in these days, I was telling somebody else, everything that's happening in our, in our life around us has challenged the responsibilities that we have as a Christian. I can't do what I used to do I, the way I used to do it. Um, I used to have, we used to gather three or four times together in a building that looks like a church. Um, we used to be able to get, do all these things. I used to sing in the worship team. I was an usher. I had all these responsibilities, but now you can't do that. So because you can't do your responsibility, you have no identity because your identity was married to your responsibility. But because of isolation and COVID, now you can't work the way you used to work. You can't play the way you used to play. You can't worship the way you used to worship. So you don't do anything. In the vacuum, you have no identity. So when you don't know what to do and you know what's, don't know what's happening, you have to get back to your identity. Who am I? Yeah. Who am I? My, my identity always grounds me in my responsibility. My responsibility should not define my identity. I love this about Pastor Adam since I've known him. He's always been married to his identity, single and married. He was always married to his identity. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. And it didn't matter when or where. And, and if, that, if that causes suffering for me, then I suffer for me. But I saw a quote today, and I tracked it, because I hate to quote something, I'm not sure where it came from. Because you'd be shocked with quotes. Like, mm-hmm. um, uh, what's, what, is a good example of that. Um, this too shall pass. That's not a Christian quote, that's an Iranian proverb. Mm-hmm. And it came to pass as, by, as part of the Bible, like, this too shall pass, that's an Iranian, but that's why I'm scared when I quote things. But anyway, 
The earliest to- uh, quote I could find for this particular quote, I think, was a message from 1601. A pastor priest said this. And he, in paraphrasing, he said, we don't have to... Um, we don't have to shout of the darkness. We can just shine a light. Rather than shout of the darkness, be a light. Mm-hmm. The darkness is... I, I don't have to start... My, but my conversation is all about pandemics, issues. When that becomes my conversation, mm-hmm. that's not the new song that God has put in my mouth in Psalm 40, verse 2 and 3. He's put a new song in my mouth. He hasn't put that in my mouth. Um, I, can be, I need to be out loud for God. And that doesn't necessarily mean my mouth, but my life should be out loud for God. Um, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, my life is a living epistle. My life should be speaking the words of life in John 6, not the tragedies of life and the problems. People need a good word. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been door knocking in Baltimore, and I tell you what, I enjoy encouraging people. Mm-hmm. And I, I added something to my evangelism. That in previous years, and all my years of being a Christian, I've been saved since I was 12, I've never done this. I, I kind of said, I'm going to try this, God. And I had so much fun with it, door knocking. I'm going to do this. Pray. I don't care who it is. I don't care what their response is. I'm going to end. I'm going to find a way by force and pray for them. Because I said, the best thing you can do for someone to love them without touching them is pray to them right in front of them. It's one thing to say, I'll pray for you. Mm-hmm. But to do it to you right in front of you. Yeah. I've seen people that said, well, I'm this. I don't believe in that. I said, okay, great. Let's pray for you. And I just, or I'll just, or I'll ask them something. I'll just say, God, help him right now in his home right here. Cover his house. Bless his job, help him. I'll pray. And just, I, they want to shut the door in my face and they stop. It arrests them. Prayer arrests them. They're like, and they'll freeze. And they will not. Sh- I've never had anyone shut me down, slam the door in my face. I've had some arrogant people, mad people, racist people, yeah. Muslim people, Hindu people. They all let me finish. Because yeah. prayer is interesting. It's something about when someone in your face is praying for you. Yeah. Yeah. I said to one guy when I finished, I said, I'm the only person to pray for you. He said to me, in my whole life. And I just stood there and looked. I said, my God. Anyway, it's just, okay, in this season, people need a word in season. They need to be encouraged. You, where you are, your job, your family, your household, you have the power to be that. Because there's two groups of people that you hate, privately and quietly. Those who criticize you, and believe it or not, most of those who teach you. Because there's a value in a teacher, but why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4.15, you have 10,000? Why did he go so wide? The average person in Paul's day did not know 10,000 people. But why did he take it so wide? He used hyperbole there. Why? Think about that. It doesn't mean you're going to have 10,000 teachers. It's just as everybody in your life is trying to teach you. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. Well, your job and your family, your spouse, your kids even, are trying to teach you. My daughter's trying to teach me. Lily, <laughs> she's 12 going on 47, so she's definitely trying to teach me. But it's like they're always trying to teach you. Everybody wants to teach you. Everybody's like, hey, that's not how you do that. Oh, my God, I'm going to school. You're just in school again. I'm at the gas station getting gas. I'm back in school again. Someone's trying to teach me. Uh, the Costco cashier is trying to teach me. The Kroger manager, security guard is trying to teach me. No, you don't do that. You don't wear the mask this way. No, you should. They're always trying to teach you. So after a while, you're like this victim student your whole life. You're like, eh, okay, I'm, please don't teach me. Just be my friend. Easy. Right? So you, you get tired of being taught. Okay, can I have a relationship with you and you're not trying to lord over me? Because when we say teach, it's always like this. I've got to figure it figured out and you don't have to figure it out. Let me help you get it figured out. You elevate to educate. 
And I shouldn't have to elevate to educate because God didn't do that. In John 1.14, God came down. He, he humbled himself. He didn't elevate to educate. He got low. He understood the value of relational leverage, which is get low. Not rise above somebody. Get low. And then you've got relational leverage where you can actually minister. So anyway, I, I, I get, be an encourager. Mm-hmm. Encur- have a word and season. In you is life. In 1 John 5, 12, in you is a word. God gave the word in Psalm 68, verse 11. God gave the word and great was the company of them that published it. Be a publisher. Be a speaker. Have a word in season. Lift a feeble hand. People are bleeding and hurting quietly in their lives behind isolated closed doors. There was a lady being Stephen Young knocked on her door and her husband was an attorney. I saw the Esquire on the Doing it. it was like warning about solicitors, and all that, but we're knocking on the door anyway. I, I'm blind. I can't read that. So we knocked on the door. I said, she said, did you see the sign? I said, no, I completely missed it. What does it say? And I just found a way. And then she's like, she's like, yeah, how you doing? Then she said, yeah. She said, um, you're invited. Come on in. There's coffee here. <laughs> but literally, she said to me, my husband just passed away, and no one has been to see me since the pandemic. You're the first ones to see me. And, wow. and we just happened on her door. We were with her for like 25 minutes. She's like, she was like in tears. Like, I can't believe you guys came and talked to us. I was feeling alone by myself. If I fall down, what will happen to me? Having a word in season. And you know what it is? It's being a light in a dark time. And, it's, it's, and not looking for the, through the door for the next person to come through. That's going to be the guy that's going to do it. It's me. I can be empowered to be used by God. And in my world, I can be a difference maker in people's lives. And that's how it changes. That's how it happens. That's how we win. One, one connection, one initiation at a time. God's life. Because that's what Christ did. Christ, as much as you say you see Christ preaching the Sermon on the Mount, three major sermons in the, in the Gospels. 40, no, it's 57. 57% of the relational contacts that are recorded in the Gospels is Jesus Christ one-on-one. Mm-hmm. A ton of one-on-ones. Yeah, him one-on-one, him one-on-one, him one-on-one, him one-on-one. And you look at your life and you say, okay, God, I know in my world, 437 people, random number. Okay, how many can I bless? Yeah. How many can I encourage? It could be a phone call. It could be a text. It could be the playing out gospel. Sometimes it's just the life of God in you that ministers to people. Mm-hmm. Colossians 4, 3, 4, Christ who is our life. Colossians 1, 27, Christ in you, the hope of all glory. Why does he say it like that? Why does Paul say Christ in you? He doesn't say Christ around you or Christ to the world. He says the Jesus Christ that's in you. You have a purpose. You have a portion. And you have a ministry. Second Corinthians 3, 5, you're an able minister. You're not sufficient for these things, but you've been imparted something, and what you've been imparted can be imparted to people. And I think the way that I guard my heart against being distracted in these times and and, and use this time, the church has an opportunity in this pandemic because we have the answer. It's Jesus Christ. Pastor Ben Turkey used to always say this. I love this statement. I've heard it in 1984, and I haven't forgotten it. Jesus Christ is the answer. What is your question? What is your question? Really? And that's where you begin. You, 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 you minister to people, you talk to people, you hear people, and it's like, wow, people have had horrific lives. 
Whenever you feel like your life is trash, go talk to some people. Like, oh, I guess my, my two cars, garage, and my, my Apple phone are not so bad after all. <laughs> I mean, my Netflix account got canceled. Maybe that's not so bad after all. They don't have a, they don't have a front door. I guess it's not so bad after all. It's like I, whenever I feel like that, I go, I go evangelize. I go talk to people about God, whether it's the supermarket or whatever. And I'm like, I am blessed. Wow. At Ephesians 1 3, I've got some spiritual blessings I didn't know about. I go, wow. And the material will come and it will go. Uh, Luke 12 15, um, a man's life is more than what he possesses. If my life is all, all if, but rather, in Philippians 3 4, 3, actually 3 11 through 14, what possesses me is more powerful than what I possess. Yeah. And I've got to be careful That's that good. what I possess does not possess yes. me, yes. but what possesses me allows me to have God's mind for what I possess. Yes. I've got to see it in perspective. Because that's what God gives you that the world doesn't have is eternal perspective. So then your life is not measured by the pluses and the minuses because the pluses and minuses are part of life. And the inadequacies and the inequities that exist, you don't spend your entire life crusading against inequities that you can't fix because you can't fix the human condition. You can't fix sin. You can't fix, you can't fix these things. And that's the argument of humanism, that the world can fix itself. And the reason why they say the world can fix itself is because they don't believe there's a God who did it. Yeah. So if, if I don't believe that Jesus could fix it, then I have to fix it, right? And that's the problem with the world. They're going around trying to fix the world. We're, they think that we're smarter and we're better and we're stronger. And the last time they believed that was in the human, um, humanistic manifesto. Then they said, okay, we can fix the world, fix sin. Then Hitler came and showed them how evil men can be. World War II showed, and then they just said, oh my God, we can't fix it. We, we're creating Hitlers. And then, we, and then all of a sudden, we, we started believing in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s that man is getting smarter and stronger. We're conquering the world. They have cars that can drive themselves. And then all of a sudden, Corona came and God pulled the plug and said, we can't fix ourselves again. So Corona is our World War II, Humanistic Manifesto 3.0. It just shut down man and said, oh, you got this all figured out. Yeah. With your modern, with your iPhone 37, and you got this all figured out with your cars that drive themselves, and you know, the, and the, the sound, I just speak, and I, my food is cooking, and my lights turn on, and I, I remote control for my car, I lock my house, all this sketchy stuff. Let me give you something natural. How's that working for you? Let me just shut down the planet. Thank you. Lights out. What? Yeah. So, so what, what's happened? I don't know. I lost my job. I don't have money. I've gained 25 pounds. What happened? <laughs> This guy out of control. Corona just came out of nowhere. And I've got a, de- I've got a delivery bill of $5,000. What happened? The, the price of gas went down because nobody's driving. But other than that, I'm just talking. But, so I, I need perspective. I need God's mind. Without God's mind, the destruction will be a distraction. I need God's mind. And the thing is, we have the mind in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We can function in the mind in Philippians 2.5. And we need the mind of God to make sense of the rubble that is our lives. Because mm-hmm. if we don't have God's mind, I'm stuck in Romans 7. Mm-hmm. And Paul in Romans 7 walking around saying, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Who will deliver me? I realize my life. I'm a Christian for 18 years. I'm Paul the apostle. I'm a Christian. I'm a leader. And my life is a mess. Nothing's working. Nothing's right. I'm confused. And then Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that what I'm experiencing is not my identity. One problem I find with many Christians is they have identity crisis. They don't know who they are. So they try to define who they are by what they do, and religion encourages it because it gives you something to do, which is the original curse of the garden, work. 
That's why you walk in a situation like, I know I'm Christian because I'm doing Christian things. Um, and if I'm not doing Christian things, I'm the head of the deaconess board, I'm the worship leader, give me something to do and I validate my Christianity. I've got nothing to do, I'm not a Christian. There are Christians walking around because they can't do what they did before the pandemic who don't even feel saved. I can't do what I did, so I'm not who I am. Like I had pastors say to me, well, I can't do this, so I can't preach the way I want to, so I'm not a pastor. Well, I, I, can't you shepherd without a pulpit? Can't you shepherd without a building? Is it about people? If it's about people, that is the ministry. Appointment, shepherd, that's what it is. That's 1 Timothy 3. What, where, where is it at? I, right now, God's people need God's people. We need each other. It's, the, it's Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpening iron. We need a word in season. We need, we need, we need to give each other Christ in the middle of the crisis because Christ is the only thing that helps us get through the crisis. And crisis is good because crisis reveals my need for Christ. Guess why you can't say Christ without crisis? I need the crisis. I need the crisis. That's my new T-shirt, by the way. Pastor Chris is selling after after the service. Can't say Christ without crisis. We need a good crisis is nice. You know why a good crisis is nice? Number one, you realize exactly who you are. All the all the all the fraudulent pretend religion stuff you push on everybody else, you think nobody else notices. Crisis will uncover you. Wham! Pull back the sheets and see the dirty clothes underneath the bed. Crisis does that. What's wrong with him? Oh, that's the real him. We just got past all the crazy, and there it is. Yeah. You know, again, all the boilerplate, the smooth, the polished, the praise the Lord, the amen, the hallelujah, and God is good, and all the time, and all the time, is God is good. We just moved all that to the right, and this is you. So you, you, get, you get a good look in the mirror, your spiritual mirror, who you are. And it's good to see that sometimes, like, wow, okay. Sometimes it's positive because there's areas where you thought you would be explosive, and you're not. Right. You yeah. find you've got a second Corinthians 12, 9, you're like, whoa, I should be screaming right now, but I'm actually enjoying I'm calm when my friends say, why aren't you crazy? Because yeah. I got Jesus. I got the other C. Mm. You want crazy. I want Christ. And because I have Christ, I'm not crazy. That's right. I'm good. I'm good to go. <laughs> and then on the other side, there's other areas where I say, well, I thought I was so strong. And this is always so heartbreaking. I thought I was so strong in that area. Like I had a guy one time say, you know, pastor, I was so, I thought I had that under check. And like, no, you're like the rest of us. You're frail and weak. You know, take it easy. Psalm 103, verse 14, God knows you're but dust. God's not shocked. I, oh, my God, I can't believe I thought that. God's like, yeah, you got more coming. So trust me. Here's, here's a scary thought. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 11. You only know how evil you have been. You don't know how evil you can be. Right. You have historical knowledge about your evil. So you could, be, you could be worse than you are. Like, oh my, like these guys say, you know what? I kind of conquered evil. I figured out sin. Yeah, I got this. I've grown to the level. Hit the pastor shout a quote. You never outgrow stupid, by the way. <laughs> I had 19 years of Bible school. I've memorized Isaiah, and you can be stupid in a moment. You don't outgrow stupid. As long as you got an old sin nature, as long as you got lust patterns, as long as you got flesh, as long as you're in the world system, and there's a devil and there's a demon, that, trust me. God's like, you haven't seen the worst of you. <laughs> What's good? Here's the great part. God has and still chose you. Think yeah. that through. Yeah. Imagine if you could, if you could, if, if Google, God bless Google, if Google <laughs> could show you all the evil of your spouse, would you still choose your spouse? Oh, yeah, in five years, yeah. she's going to do this, she's going to do that. What? And now, do you take, no, I don't take them at all. I just, Google just told me everything. No. 
God knows everything about you. And he still says, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I chose you that you have fruit that remains. Wait a minute. You know everything about me and you still can choose me and make sure. That's what's hidden in that verse. He makes sure my life is fruitful. In In the verse, here's how he does. In verse 15, he uses one word over and over again. Chapter 15, abide. Mm-hmm. Your job is not to make your life fruitful. Mm-hmm. Your, your job is to That's abide right. in me, and I make you fruitful as you abide in me. Yeah. So I choose you to abide in me, mm-hmm. and because you choose to respond positively by faith to that, I make your life fruitful. You can always see someone who God is making their life fruitful because it's, it's effortless. It's like, really? Wow. As opposed to, man, I'm trying to be super Christian. Look at me. I'm making it happen. Are you kidding me? It's like work. It is work because it's your work. 2 Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord must not strive. That's so good. I like how I said, you're a servant, but you're not striving. Where in the world are you a servant and you don't strive? Hmm? Whatever culture it is, first, second, and third world. By the way, two-thirds of the world is third. Literally. So a lot of the world is, doesn't have the privileges that we have here today. Um, but imagine for a moment you're a servant, but you're the only servant in history who doesn't strive. The word there, strive, it literally means like fight to manufacture effort, like hustle. You can do it. It's, it's like Nike. It's like we're the anti-Nike. <laughs> we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do it. God does it, and we participate in what he's doing, really. It's like, um, but there's a desire to do it since the garden. The number one desire you have is to do. Mm-hmm. That was part of the curse. To do. I want to do. I want to do. That's why right now there's such, well, let's say it this way. The world's trap is to get me to do the wrong thing. Or get me to, here's a scary version, to do the right thing the wrong way. There's so much good and so far God. And what did we say earlier in Isaiah 55, 8? Good and God are so far away. Man's good and God is so far away. We kind of think that good for us is good for God. Like Romans 8, 28, God works everything together for good. That good is not the good we're working for. I can't make that good. Who's doing the work in Romans 8, 28? God is. We have, a lot of Christians that quote that verse, and we have zero responsibility in that verse. We're doing nothing in that verse. Read the verse. God works everything together. Who's doing the work? God. That's why the word for work, energeo, means effective. The reason why it's effective is because God's the one doing it. If God wasn't the one doing it, it'd be suspect. You know, it'd be like, okay, man is suspect working things together for good. Wink, wink. Hope it works out. Versus God Almighty, Alpha and Omega, is affection. He did the planet and it was good, right? Yeah. And it was good because he did it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, what God does, he does forever, that men would know that power belongs to God. When God does it, he does it. Yes, when God does it, he does it. Mm-hmm. I will work a work in your days, that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it in Habakkuk 1 5. When God does it, he does it. He's working in your life. You are the workmanship of God in Ephesians 2.10. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day. He's doing it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. God is doing it. God is doing it. I'm participating by faith in what God is doing in eternity with the results in time. 
Or you could say the revelation in time, because in God's mind, it's already been done, but it's played out in time. So, it's, so what's my responsibility? Hebrews chapter three things. Number one, to know God. Yeah. Personally, practically, corporately, moment by moment, struggle by struggle, to know God. Mm-hmm. Philippians 3.10. Number two, to make him known. To make him known. With my life, I think sometimes we, we, we do we, we extremes. John 13, the heart of man, John 13. Don't wash me at all, wash me all over. Mm-hmm. Don't say any, just use my mouth only. Never use my mouth and always use my life. You meet those two types of Christians. They do a lot of talking and there's no living. Well, they do a lot of living, but there's no talking. I've got a Jesus Christ bumper sticker. I've got a Jesus Christ necklace. I've got a Jesus, a little statue on my desk of Jesus Christ, but I don't ask me to open my mouth. Mm-mm. Just look at my desk. Look at my, de- look, at my, look at my phone. It's got a picture of Christ on it. I've got the Bible downloaded. Never open it, but I've got it open. So I've got the app. I downloaded the app. That's the job. Like if it's fuzz- the app's on my phone. I'm biblical. So I don't ask me to open the Bible, but just make sure I've got the app there just in case. You, Hey, by the way, I happen to have the 17 versions of the Bible on my phone. And you haven't opened one in six months. But anyway, you got the da- download it down. Like it's an app. But anyway, um, I, I could talk about that, but I won't. But the point I want to make is, and then number three, I know him, I make him known, and then I fellowship around those who know him. The body. The body of Christ, the church. Satan wants to break the body of Christ. Yeah, he does. The oldest strategy in time, in history, in eternity, is divide and conquer. He tried it in heaven, and then Romans, Revelation 12, 9 and 10, he got kicked out of heaven for that very same reason. What's shocking about that is in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, when iniquity was found in Satan's heart, shockingly enough, God did nothing. If I knew that one of you in this room had iniquity in your heart, I would throw you through that, that glass door right there. Hurl you through it. I explained to Pastor Chris later. He, she had iniquity in her heart. Pastor Chris threw it right out the door. He go, understood, Pastor. So, <laughs> Pastor Chris has got understood. He got, she had to go. But God knew. God knew. God knew and didn't do anything. That's either great foolishness or great confidence and nothing in the middle. That's either supernatural confidence or supernatural foolishness. And God is not a fool. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God is not a fool. Man is a fool, Psalm 14, verse 1, but God is not a fool. He can make men look foolish in 1 Corinthians 1, but God is not a fool. So, God knew. That's why in a, in a church, you could have somebody that has the wrong motive and God said it's okay. I pastored in my life in six churches. And I can tell you that people that are in the church, that sometimes I've said, that person probably shouldn't be here. God says, leave it. Sometimes God said, leave it. Leave it. Your job is not to police the church. Your job is not to search the hearts of men. You don't know what I'm doing. There's some guys I thought should stay, and God took them out. 1 John 2, 16 to 17. And there's some guys I thought should leave, and God left them in. (laughs) <laughs> so it's really a work of God, right? Ecclesiastes chapter um, 13, verse 7, 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God made crooked? Sometimes the work of God is crooked. It's not my job to straighten it out. I'm going to straighten out that guy because something's wrong with him because you're God's sheriff. Thank you. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you, Sheriff. Put on your hat and your boots and just walk in. right out of Houston. I'm the sheriff of this church. I'm going to be here to correct everybody. Pastor Chris, don't worry about me. I got a 10 star with Jesus Christ, JC on the star, and I'm going to wrestle up some sinners and get them out of this church. Before you know it, the church is empty, including the sheriff. <laughs> anyway. But it's literally like, it's like divide and conquer. God left him there. You know when God kicked him out of heaven? When he began to merchandise. This is what the Hebrew, the tra- transliterated word was. And the word merchandise, it literally means he went around and started selling lies. That's why in John 8, 44, he's the father of lies. Because he was marketing lies. Where a salesman would go market. He was marketing lies among the angelic host. And what's shocking to me, which is why I believe anybody can be deceived, one-third of the angelic host saw God and chose him. Saw God and chose, and chose Lucifer. Now, either Lucifer is very persuasive or they were just asleep with the switch. Don't forget, angels didn't live by faith. That took me a long time to process in my mind. Angels don't function with God by faith, which is why they marvel at our faith. We live by faith. We don't see God and trust him. They see God. Angels don't function by faith. So their relationship with God was strictly, scary version, by sight and experience. God did not put a gene in them to make them serve him. He commanded it and they responded. But they, they, they don't have a faith relationship. And when you go to heaven, faith is for time. Faith is not for eternity. We will not walk by faith with God in eternity. That's for time. Sin and faith are both for time, which is interesting. Because God records one, Malachi 3.6, everything you do by faith, and doesn't record sin in Hebrews 10.17. Isn't that interesting? Huh. The only two things that stand in time, one, is, one, one that's important to us, sin, God doesn't record, Hebrews 10.17, and one that's important to God, Malachi 3.16, we're familiar with and we ignore. <laughs> Once again, God's mind and my mind are so far. What's important to me is not really that important to God. What's important to God, a lot of times, is not really important to me, right? It's amazing. I studied this out one time. This is a shocking statement. You can study it for yourself. Challenge Pastor Ronaldo, and you should. Who am I? I'm nobody. In the epistles, sin is dealt with less than 25% of the time. 75% of the epistles do not address sin at all. Yet you see pulpits that preach against sin every Sunday and neglect the other 75%. What is your relationship with God focused on? Your frailty or God's faithfulness? What are you focused on? What is your walk with God about? What is your life about? Once again, God's mind and my mind is so far, really so far. There's a lot of prophecy in the Bible, much of it, but not a lot about the very end of time. Percentage-wise, it's not a lot. But you have whole denominations and whole churches focused on end-time ministries. And every service is about the end of time, end time. And what about today? I'm trying to be practical and walk by God with my faith today. I might not get there. Should, uh, God may, when Paul wrote those words and the prophets wrote those words, in their mind they thought this was the end. And 1,500 years later, it, it ain't the end is not the end. So I used these 50, I, I get so, I mean, this, it, there was a lot of guys that thought in the 70s, 
Christ coming back and they, they organized all the prophecies and everything's going to happen. This is 1975. Christ, they would start naming dates. And this is 2021. He ain't here yet. So I would say, I want, I want to be mindful of those things, but I'm not focused on those things because I have a short time on the earth and we have a call from God and I want to be about that. I want to make the main thing the main thing. Yeah. If you're here, it's got to be about that. It can't be about, oh, well, what happened? I was reading in Revelation 14. I was comparing that to the church of Babylon. I've connected that with the son of so-and-so over history. I did, I did this in my, in, in my master's class. I did a paper on the Antichrist. Over time, there's been 400 men accused of being Antichrist. <laughs> 400 different men. Uh, Andy Griffith is among the 400 men. <laughs> <laughs> I got Andy. Yeah. <laughs> they always get Andy. They always get Andy. I'll just give you an example of over the, the, Psalm 2, verse 4, right? Um, man plans and God laughs. I mean, really? Psalm 16, many of the plans of the mind of a man, the answer of the tongue of the Lord. We plan in God. Once again, our thoughts are so far from God's thoughts. We go all oh, this thinking, 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 thinking. And that's what counseling is. When you get counseled by a man of God, if he's a man of God, what he's going to do is he's going to rehearse God's mind to you. And the first thing he's going to rehearse is God's mind about you. He's going to bring you back to you and God. That's what 1 John 1, 9 does, the doctrine of rebound. The first thing God says is that sin is wrong. And here's why the sin is wrong. Not because of the value of the sin being wrong, but because it's not you. That's right. always it was, it took me a while to see that. It was, it was such a revelation for me that when it comes to sin, the reason, part of the reason why God hates sin is because it's divorced from who we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, so the doctrine of rebound is identity focused. Yeah. The Holy Spirit comes in and convicts you in John 16, 7, 8, and 9 because he said, hey, you're not that. You know, it's like you, you see your child eating dirt. Don't raise your hand. I mean, you eat mud pies going up. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but I remember when I was very young. Yeah, you know, you, you play with a friend. Ah, how are you? And the, Cute little four-year-old girl next door smiles to you, makes mud pies, and you pretend to eat it like, okay. So anyway, but then your mother comes out, and she smacks the dirt pie out of your hand and probably knocks you in the next week. And she's like, hey, you don't eat that dirt. You go, why does she do that? Not because the dirt is dirty, but because you're a human, and humans don't eat dirt. She dresses a dirty. And most of your punishment as a child was based upon the, the emphasis was on who you are, not what you've done. Like, you ever heard that growing up? Hey, you're a big enough boy right now. You shouldn't be doing that. Identity based. When God disciplines you, it's identity based. Yeah. He wants to get, that's what really reconciliation is. Getting you back to who you are. Mm-hmm. So that when you know who you are, you, do, you, you, filter who you, you filter what you do through who you are instead of filtering who you are through what you do. But it's amazing to me how far we've gotten away from who we are. That the church of God doesn't recognize itself. What we were saying earlier about the three things. It's like fellowship, the body of Christ. When you read 1 John chapter 1, 2, and a little bit into 3 because they didn't get us into love. He keeps saying this word over and over again. You read it for yourself. Particularly 1 John chapter 1. Fellowship. 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 Because here's why. The Gnostics came in and brought in a caste system. And they said that individual groups can congregate in the church based on intellect. See? He's, he just leveled the playing field. He said, you want to know God, you know him by love, through fellowship in the body, not fellowship in sin. Mm-hmm. That's 1 John 1, 2, and 3, and 4. Fellowship. That's why he said, love, 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 love. You know why? Because John saw it. 
He saw the apostles and he saw there was no caste system with Jesus Christ. There were 12 guys there. He said, have I not, beautiful, Mark chapter 3, 12 through 14, have I not called you and one of you is a devil? Now now watch this. I know you're wrong. We're going to have fellowship. And I'm not going to fellowship with your wrong, but we're going to have fellowship and give you the opportunity to partake in the spiritual fellowship rather than trying to fix everybody. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how he did that. He, had, he knew he was wrong and left it. And left it. That's why sometimes in the fellowship, God leaves bad situations. He, leaves, he doesn't fix it. He leaves it. Mm-hmm. Because God has a tremendous confidence in what he's doing as opposed to what you're doing. And what he's doing can have the potential to change what you're doing, but what you're doing does not have the potential to fix what he's doing. God's going to do what he's going to do. I can participate or not, but his plan is his plan. His work is his work. Mm-hmm. So I can participate, and I'm armed with faith and the spirit to do that. I am, I am qualified to participate in what God is doing. I just have to choose. I have to activate my qualifications through the spirit by faith. That's it. And part of that activation includes, includes my gifts and my call and my portion. But really, it's me agreeing with God. Mm-hmm. I want to agree with God about three things. Number one, who he says he is. Number two, who he says I am. Number three, what he said he's done. Mm-hmm. The three areas in my life, I got to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, I got to mix faith with. Because those things don't come natural to me. I will not naturally figure out who God is. Won't do it. I'll guesstimate. I won't get it. I will not naturally figure out who I am. Jeremiah 10, 23, it's not within a man to know himself. You, 70s psycho babble, I can know myself. You can't know yourself. Jeremiah, we said it earlier in Jeremiah 17, you don't even know how evil you can be. If you don't know how evil you can be, how could you possibly know how good you can be? You don't know. You don't know you. How do people say, well, I know myself. You're a liar. You don't know you. That's why you're still shocked. I couldn't believe I could say that because you don't know yourself. And when you see people do things, you're like, I could never do that. How do you know? That guy is homeless, is drinking urine out of a cup. You are five decisions away from doing the same. It's by the grace of God you have it. Before you put yourself up here, Mr. and Mrs. Gnostic, and I could never do that. Look at that. Luke 18, Pharisee. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that guy because I'm this guy, really. You know how wicked your heart is. Job 15, 16, we have the capacity to drink iniquity like water. Let that wash over you for a minute. I have the capacity to drink iniquity like water. I, I, can, I was shaped in iniquity in Psalm 51, verse 5. Born speaking lies in Psalm 58, verse 3. Body of sin and death in Psalm 7, um, Romans 7, 18. So it's very possible, very easy for me to operate outside of God. But the mind of God teaches me three things. Number one, it teaches me who God is. That's the first lesson. Before God starts talking about who I am, he talks about who he is because I have to trust the authority of the one speaking. Case in point, why do you trust what your mother says to you? It's not be- why, is- why is it wisdom to you? Not because your mother is Einstein, because she probably isn't. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you, she's not. That's always kind of funny when you grow up. This things your mother told you for years, you realize, mom got that wrong. <laughs> she really fumbled the ball. Wow. The, the moon's not made of cheese. You just start figuring out stuff, the little things your mother told you, like, mom? 
Mm. Like when you're six, your mother says, don't go down there, those are dirty boys. You're like, okay, I guess they're dirty boys. Whatever she said was like, truth. Why was it truth? It's not because you knew what truth was. You trusted the source. So before you start gathering around what God says about anybody, you need to trust the source. So first thing God speaks about is himself. He did that with Israel. Took him in the wilderness and said, let me tell you about me. And he starts talking about himself. Then as they began to trust who he was, he began to demonstrate and talk about it. They began to trust who he was. Now, he began to apply who he was to who they were. He began with identity. Israel, you are my people. You. He does this with the, ch- the church. The, tec- the first, second thing God t- that talks to me about is me. Because before he can talk about my world or anything else, he's got to tell me about me. Because everything around me influences me. So I need God's mind about me. And this, this is where you start seeing in a person's life transformation. When you start seeing some, that second level Christianity, not the living room, we're talking about upstairs, master bedroom. You start getting up, at least the bathroom, upstairs. You get upstairs is when you start actually believing what God says about you is true. Because when you start believing that, God's truth becomes the best truth in your life. So when other people speak against you, you're like, no, no. I remember one time I had a pastor. I was wrong about something. This guy was yelling at me. Yelling, top of his lungs. <laughs> I mean, he was like vain bulging. Like, and I, I, I don't know why. I was, I was being, feeling a bit cheeky, but I said, huh. I, I said to him, I said, you're right, I'm absolutely wrong. I said to him, I said, but you're not right right now. I said, I'm wrong, but this is not how God would talk to me. And I have no evidence of that scripturally. So, Tell you what, you go over there, you get with God, then come back to me and we can talk about it. Whatever punishment you got, I got. But if this is what this is your representation of God to me, I'm not gonna respond at all. In fact, we're done talking. He got quiet, he's like, <laughs> and he really he thought thinking about what I said. And he walked away and never came back. Doesn't mean I was right. It just means in Isaiah 30, verse 1, he was adding sin to sin, and he was not representing God to me which is why that Galatians 6.1 is so true. I've got to be right with God before I go to anybody. Everybody wants to run to Matthew 18, 12, 16, go to your brother alone, when you should have went to God first. Yeah. How many times have you gone to your brother alone and forgot to go to God? Because you thought that your thoughts were close to God's thoughts. So you had the power to reconcile because I got good thoughts, but your thoughts are so far away from God, they're evil because they're not God's thoughts. We have this, under- we have this mindset that if it's not God's thought, it's okay as long as it's not evil. But any thought that's not God's thought is diametrically opposed to God's thoughts. They're not in, they're not in concert with God's thoughts. They're not, connect, they're not similar. Well, you know, God, I was thinking blue. You were thinking like, you know, navy blue, so we're pretty close. No! <laughs> they're as far, far as black is from white. It's diametrically the opposite. And the more you walk with God, the more you realize how far away your mind is from God. You're like, oh my God, Wow. God thinks like that? I could never think like that. Precisely. You wouldn't, you're not going to stumble into the mind of God. Oh, by the way, I was thinking pretty good. I think, I, I think, I think I'm close to what God thinks about the situation. No. <laughs> God's like here. You're like, huh? I was thinking there. Like, give you an example. You ever pray for something and you have solutions already organized for God? Because we, we want to think for God, right? He's Alpha and Omega, but I got pre-organized thoughts. So I pray to God, you know, God, I'd like, I'd like you to give me a new car. And here's the cars I'm thinking. 
These are the cards I'm thinking would probably work. And I've got five options. So God, among my choices, you pick the option that you, that you think is best. But I've narrowed God's plan to my choices. And the plan of God is limited, not limited to my preferences. More of a nice anti-preference, to be honest with you. I feel called to Hawaii. And God's like, have you thought about Guatemala? Excuse me? No, no, I was thinking Hawaii, Bahamas, that kind of thing. You're talking about Antarctica, Guatemala, Mongolia. No, God. So anyway, so God, so then God answers your prayer, right? You pray for a car. This is what God does. He moves you to a house closer to your job, and you don't get a car, but now you can walk to work. That option never crossed your mind. But then later you reflect and say, actually, it is better. So I don't have a, I don't have a car noted and I can exercise. And you start thinking the way through. But I would have, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So I'd be careful when you pray. Because God answers prayers his way. Not just his time. We always emphasize in Christianity his time. It's also his way. There's prayers that God is answering in your life that you haven't discerned he's answered it because he didn't answer it in the solutions that you gave him. I gave him six solutions, and God didn't use any. When I was in Bible school, I had lost my job, and I was, uh, well, actually, they got bought. They told me, you can move to Florida, take a 50% pay cut, or we lay you off. I said, lay me off. I wasn't moving to Florida and take a 50% pay cut. That's crazy. So I was like, I was like what? What options is that? It's the French company that bought our company out. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. So anyway, I said, well, this is my chance to go to Bible school. So I went to Bible school, and I said, okay, God, I've got these options right here. I've got five different companies I can work for, and this is in leadership. So leadership in the world, you always have multiple interviews, as you know. You meet with half the company in the interviews. I'm, in, I'm deep into this process with this company, four interviews in, that company, six interviews in. This is like the uh, early 90s, so they, they're heavy into pro interviewing. Now, they don't do it as much now, but back then they were heavy organizing. You had all these interviews lined up. You're going to meet the assistant of sales. You're going to meet the marketing director. You're going to meet, I'm in deep in all. I said, God, hyper-spiritual Ronaldo. God, I'm going to like, um, I'm, I, I said this, I've never prayed this prayer since. I said, God, I'm too stupid to know which one is you. So please take away what's not you, and whatever's left, I'll accept as you. With my little humble prayer. Now, in my mind, I have a solution for what's going to be. God's going to give me the perfect job, and I can support missions, and I'll be doing so great. I'll give, I'll come to outreach on Saturday for one hour a week, and I have everything planned. And you know what God did in less than six days? He canceled all of them. And I said, wait a minute. I didn't say all of them. I said, leave, leave the one that's you. And the Holy Spirit kind of made it clear, none of them were me. And in that field and in that job, I never went back to that, even to this day. God just shut it down. God answered my prayers, his way, his thoughts. But anyway, that change in my life, when I begin to believe what God says about me, deals with depression, deals with discouragement, deals with gossip. Half the time, Pastor Chris, I'm counseling people on what somebody else said to them on Facebook. Mm. This social media depression because no. of protecting my, my, my identity on social media. And someone else is attacking it, so I'm, I'm wounded because they attacked me on social media as if it's, uh, they got that electronic courage so they attack you and you, you, and you feel <laughs> defenseless. Oh my God, he just said this about me and told 7,000 people. <laughs> so, but when I... This is how you bulletproof your Christianity. What God says about me is the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And in that second level, I start valuing how God says things about me. Okay, so-and-so doesn't forgive me. If 
Ephesians 1 7 says, I'm forgiven. So if they don't forgive me, so. Well, so-and-so doesn't love me. Well, God loves me. So you just start, you start God's word in your life starts overruling all the other worlds. I feel lonely. Well, God's word overrules my world. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. He said, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even qualified to judge me. The only person qualified to judge me is, is the person who knows me. And the only person who knows me is, drum roll please, Jesus Christ. So when I am able to exile, I can appreciate people's words towards me, but I always filter that through what God has said about me. That's the divine filter for all. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, 10, all words have influence. But in Job 6.25, oh, how forcible are right words. Who knows when someone gives you the right words, a sentence, a phrase, it changes everything. It's like game changer. I just heard, I just got the right word. You ever go to church and the, the, the message is preached and somewhere in the message you heard something that just arrested you and you stopped listening to everything else. And that phrase got crystallized in your mind like, I'm free. Wow. The word did something to me. Isaiah 55, 11, it didn't return void but it worked in my life and something happened and I know it. And you can't explain it, because a lot of times when God does something in your life, you can't enunciate that. But you know it happened, and you know when it happened, and you can't figure out necessarily why, but it's what you needed. Like, the Word of God did something in your life in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God came in and started separating the natural from the spiritual. And all of a sudden, in Jeremiah 15, 16, you found the Word of God. It was a rejoicing to your soul came in. And in the light of the word of God in Psalm 36 verse 9, you got more light. You got free. John 8, 36 and 32, you got free. The word did that. That's the power. Colossians 3, 16, the word of God dwelling in you richly. The word of God came in and all of a sudden wow, God's word starts mattering in your life and the words of people matter less. Mm-hmm. If the word of God, if the word of people matters to you, it can be influential in 1 Corinthians 14, 10, but be careful when you esteem it. Jeremiah 15, 16, I esteem the word of God above my necessary food. We live by the word in Matthew 4, 4. Be careful with the word of God. With the words of people, rather. When you esteem them, they have the power to move you. Maybe somebody say something to you and you're done. The rest of the day, you're just kidding, think straight. Like, I gotta go home. You're done. Yeah, because you, because you prioritized and you privatized and then you internalized what someone said about you. Then you get, I told someone today, so why did someone still say this to me? And I'm still like, let's say, because you internalized it. You gave it life. You gave it an existence. You considered it, which is why adultery in Matthew 5, it talks about when you look upon a woman, when you consider, when you give, you give it life by letting it exist instead of 2 Corinthians 10, 5, casting it down, you gave it life. You held it for a few minutes. and hmm, You considered it. You gave it life. That certain projections can invigorate it and give it life again. The memory can come back. But you have, it's casted down, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Because our weapons in verse 4 are not natural, which means I don't deal with, I don't deal, with, this is so good. As a Christian, I don't deal with natural things naturally anymore. Mm-hmm. Our weapons of warfare are not natural. I don't deal with natural things naturally anymore. It means as a Christian, I don't win the way I used to win. Mm-hmm. I don't lose the way I used to lose. 
I don't suffer the way I suffer. It's different because I have a spiritual perspective about all of it. So when, when, I, when I should be upset, I'm not. When I should be moved, I'm not. The things that I'm concerned about, but they're not what I used to be concerned about. God has changed my priorities because he's changed my perspective because I'm a child of God. So once I begin, step three, once I begin to, this is addict living, once I begin to really value what God says about me, I begin to value what God says about the family of God and then my world, step four. A lot of people in religion promote the world, but they don't know, understand that everything that goes out there has to first happen in here. I can't say I love hungry people in Ethiopia if I can't love people in this room. Cannot say I can sacrifice, pray for, and minister those people there if I can't do it here. This is the incubator for the, of, of, of education for the Christian. I learn how to love unconditionally here. I learn how to forgive here. I learn how to sacrifice here. I learn how to minister and serve here in the house of God because this is the first testimony of God to the world. It is the church in Ephesians chapter 3. See, God, I was thinking of this the other day. God first made himself manifest. He showed the world who he was through Abraham. Then he showed the world who he was through a family, the Jews. Then he showed it through Abraham's family. Then he showed it through a nation. Then it's the church. The fourth progression of the, the revelation, the progressive revelation of who God is, is revealed through the church. The world knows who God is in its, in, in its completeness, in the fullness in Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. The fullness of God is revealed in the church. So you can't tell me you found fullness out there, but there's no fullness in here, right? Like when you go, you see somebody at the street, say, oh my God, we, 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 growing up we used to say this, he had no home training, remember that? Mm-hmm. How come you don't brush your, t- I, I remember I was a friend of mine tying his tie, he doesn't put his tie on, he ties his tie on the, on the shirt, on the ground, then he puts it on himself. I said, who taught you how to tie a tie? And then I realized no one taught him how to tie a tie. He didn't learn that lesson at home, so he got it in the street. That's not how God works. You're not going to learn spiritual lessons in the street and not learn spiritual lessons in the house of God. This is the place of education, right? So once I begin to apply how God says about what God says about me, I begin to believe that in a corporate way in the church of God. Because if He said about me, this is watch how God works. Ephesians one seven, I'm forgiven. Ephesians four thirty two, I can forgive my brother. As Christ has forgiven me. He doesn't say forgive the world in Ephesians 4.32. He says forgive my brother. Why do you take the next level of forgiveness to the church? Because that's the next place where those lessons are learned. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, oh, because I forgive, you're forgiven, you can forgive your boss. No, you're never going to be able to forgive your boss if you can't forgive your pastor. You can't forgive the Sunday school teacher. You go, oh, I can't forgive Pastor Chris, but I can forgive the guy at the gas station. No, that's not how it works. Correlatively and progressively, all revelation in the Bible is progressive. Okay? All of it. Throughout time and in our lives, it's progressive. Moment by moment, Isaiah 26, 3, God is working, moment by moment, God's working it out. So, the next level of understanding about what God is saying is about the church. If the church would learn that lesson, we could be, we're quiet because we haven't learned that lesson. Galatians 5, 15, 16, we're biting and devouring each other instead of valuing the church the way God values the church. I actually believe that God thinks more of the church than the church itself does. Mm-hmm. We don't value the church. We're, we have schisms and divisions, and we, we make, we, we, we look for, I ask people, what are you looking for when you come to church? You look at the sin, you'll find it. But you know what's funny about God? 
When he comes to the church, he doesn't come looking for a set. He comes looking for his family. Come looking for the sons and daughters of God, the people that he died for, not the behavior that they did. But we, we're hunting the wrong thing. And whatever you're looking for, you'll find. You'll find it. You want to find, uh, you want to find uh, uh, mistakes and all those things? You'll find them. What's interesting to me is that we give our natural family a pass because they're a family, but we don't give the church of God a pass. So there's things you'll tolerate in your natural family that in your church you would never tolerate. My, my dirty cousin borrowed, five, borrowed $100 and never paid it back. Well, he's my cousin. So also bought, Pastor Chris borrows a dollar from me for a coffee and you leave the church because he didn't give me back my dollar. Wow. So, the, so your natural family gets mercy that the spirit church of God. And you know what? God works the other way around. Because mm. God does not indwell your natural family. He indwells his spiritual family. He calls his spiritual family the body of Christ. He, he's the head of your spiritual family. He's not the head of your natural family. People put those signs in their house, God is the head of this house. If they're born again, he is. Sorry to say, if, he's, if you're not born again, if the entire family's not, he's not the head of that household. You are. <laughs> Scary version, you are. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world is the head of your family. You can't just pronounce Christ the head of your natural booze, smoking, drinking family and say, oh, God, put a, put a blackboard on my wall. God is the head of this house. No demon's scared of that. <laughs> well, we don't go in that house because they've got a sign that says that God is the head of this house. No, demons tremble because they, they know who God's house is the head of. The church. Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. <clears throat> But the gates of hell prevail every day against a lot of other institutions and places in, in, in life. And he's growing in authority. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, it says, evil waxes worse and worse. When, when, when Paul wrote that, roughly 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote that, it was already increasing authority. How much more authority has Satan grown in the venue of arena of the world since then? When it says waxes worse, worse, stronger and stronger, worse and worse, it's not talking about power. A lot of preachers call it power. No, the word that is used is authority. Satan has much more authority than he had before, and God allows it according to his plan. Mm -hmm. Once again, there's the confident God. He's got iniquity in his heart, and I'm doing nothing. He's in the garden chatting up Eve, and I'm doing nothing. It's amazing how God, how patient. That's one of the, there's two things about God's character right now that for the last 12 months have just completely confused me. Mm -hmm. The patience of God is one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I marvel at it, really. The patience of God. Mm -hmm. And then number two, the mercy of God. I, I was telling my wife the other day, I'm growing in my compassion for the natural man. Mm -hmm. I realize the human condition is a tragic condition. And before we go around judging people, attacking people, holding them to a standard. I think we hold people to a, a standard that God doesn't hold them to. And that's, we get disappointed with people and God's not even disappointed. Like, we have this expectation for a person and God's got this one. So they met God's expectation and failed you, so you've got a problem with them because they didn't meet your personal subjective point of view perspective. I can't believe she did that. God's not surprised. Romans 11, 29, the gifts and calling of God are without him changing his mind. God gifted you knowing you'd make mistakes and gifted you anyway. 
God gave you a call knowing you would fail in your call because I'll call you anyway. But we quickly judge and criticize and crush people. It's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Like I said, God's thoughts and my thoughts are so mm-hmm. far away. And the more you know God's thoughts, the more you realize, oh my gosh, I'm so far away from God and yeah. worship. Yeah. I need to grow. It will humble you. Yeah. The way that God says to treat people sometimes, what? Forgive. Yeah. Be merciful. You don't know what made that person that way. You don't know what they went through. You're just getting this. You don't know what's behind that. Mm-hmm. You don't know their trouble, the trauma, what they've been through, how they were raised. Mm-hmm. I had one pastor tell me last week about another pastor. Do you know what he's doing this? I said, he lived on the street for seven years. That changed the way he saw authority. So rather than judge him, I think you might want to have some compassion for him. Because I think you have a higher expectation for him than God does. So he hasn't failed God, but he's failed you. And woe be unto you when you live your life worried about who's failing you. And one day you're going to be on the other, you're going to be on the business end of mercy, and you're going to want mercy. The business end of mercy. Hmm? Like there was a lady in one of my churches, and she's yelling about this ex-prostitute that came to church. How can she come to church? I said, oh. So when you and your fiancé Got, you had premarital sex and all of a sudden you got pregnant before you got married and that was covered. But that's okay. You don't want to talk about that. You want to talk about her. And then she got quiet. So I said, yeah, it's amazing how quick you want to talk. Romans chapter 2 verse 15, you want to accuse and excuse. Excuse yourself and accuse them. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. How does Rahab enter into the lineage of Jesus Christ? Our thoughts are not. Who in this room would forgive David for his Davidic sin? This is like epic level. <laughs> Adulterer, murderer, epic. Who puts that in a sentence? That's like someone, that's like a, the first 24. That's like some kind of serious reality TV. Oh my God. You'd be ribbing. Oh my God. You'd watch the David the miniseries. It'd be huge. And God's like, and he'll be the millennial king. Excuse me? Yeah. Because I'm God. And I can do that. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. How is it possible? Abraham lied about his wife twice? You think it once, but now he did the same sin twice? Yeah. He's the father of your faith. Imagine that. How about that one? What? My God. Peter? Paul? The murderer? You, you started, we were talking about this in the truck on the way over here. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when it's talking about Paul the murderer. When you study historically how Paul, what Paul did, he didn't just murder men, he murdered families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul the apostle murdered women and children and men, families, in the name of religion. He was his own little personal Spanish Inquisition. He was the Pauline Inquisition. He was taking them out left and right. Me and Christ Chris were talking about how, I don't know if God took all those memories away from him. It's possible, me and Pastor Chris were talking about how maybe he's walking around I thought about it this way. Acts chapter 20, the boy falls out the window and dies. And maybe Paul has a flashback and says, I couldn't save all those people that I killed, but I could save this boy. Maybe that boy reminds him of another boy that maybe he murdered. And Paul talks about it. I was injurious. I was a murderous. First Timothy and Second Timothy, it, he, it, it, he pointed out his present conditions continue. He still sees that. He understands mm-hmm. it. He wasn't living in guilt, but he was very, very understanding about who he was and what he had done. Shocked at it. And I think sometimes 
We need good doses of mercy. And people that struggle to give mercy struggle to receive it. People that struggle to love struggle to receive it. People that struggle to forgive struggle to understand they've been forgiven. When you dig a little bit, why is he so bitter? Why is he so unforgiving? Then you realize, oh my God, this person has never really embraced forgiveness for themselves. Mm -hmm. Or this person has never really understood what love is. Because by the way, what do you know about love? The way you've been loved, the way you've seen love, you have a historical experiential definition of love. So when you read something about unconditional love, what the heck is that? That is so exotic, that's weird. It doesn't make sense. You're like a fool to love like that. And God says, I've been doing it for decades, for years, for centuries. And you, it looks unfair. Because you think the kingdom of God is fair. And life is not fair. Never mind God, life is not fair. That's the first little slap in the face you get when you leave your mother's house. I can't believe my boss did that. He took my answers. Exactly. It's one thing I don't protect my daughter from is disappointment. I wanted to get to know that early. I wanted to see that the world is not a place of everything works out, everything's good, and everybody's good. That this, is a, this world is twisted. It sits in evil. First John chapter 5, verse 19. It, it sits in like a pocket of evil. Read that the Bible describes the world as shocking. Mm-hmm. Corrupt, vile, evil. And that's because Satan has weaved a system for millennia. Think that through. Millennia of organized evil. Categorized, organized evil. He might not be omnipresent or omniscient, but he is certainly super organized. The greatest corporation in eternity is evil. It runs like one. Categorized and organized in Ephesians chapter 6. Principalities and powers and and spiritual witness in high places. He's got organized evil. There's an organized plan against you. The great part is, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God has put a governor over the, uh, the access of evil to your life. If God wanted to, he could unrestrain evil and evil could have at you completely. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. You know why? He doesn't bless you beyond your capacity and he doesn't tempt you beyond your capacity. There's some blessings that in your lifetime you may get. Lottery, I don't know. But he will never let, God always addresses capacity. He speaks to you according to capacity. He initiates according to capacity. He blesses according to capacity. He allows temptation according to capacity. He's always measuring, but he knows you. So whatever you're experiencing, if you say I can't take it, good or bad, you can, because God allowed it. We're getting a pandemic in 2020 because we can take it in 2020. I'm not sure we could have handled it in 2018 or even 2015. I'm not sure we were ready for that. But the world has been pretty resilient. I don't see total chaos to you. I see things we're not used to. But there's always going to be stuff you're not used to. There's always something that changes. Two things are true about change. It's always going to have attrition. It's always going to have adversity. Two things with change. It's going to always be difficult. It's going to, we're going to always lose some things. But, we, but as a race, God is not... Don't forget, John 3.16 is still true. God still loves the world. He doesn't love the trees, the birds. It's just the people. He died for them. He even died for the ones that, didn't, that will never choose him. So he's, he's measuring, according to his plan how much he's going to allow to happen to the human race. Satan would wipe us out today as a race, if he could, mm-hmm. to hurt God. 
So if there's a pandemic that's happened, it's because according to God's plan and the capacity of the human race, we can take it. And God's going to use it to reveal himself in some measure. So God has meted it out to us. Like, why would he allow in Genesis 7 a flood? The most ungracious thing in the Old Testament is a flood that kills thousands of people. Why? Because even though that we were reduced to a remnant, and God always has a remnant, even now, we can take it. How do we go from, what, eight people? How do we go from eight to eight billion? <laughs> Think that through. How do we get there? <laughs> really? In less than, in less than, let's calculate that, in less than 7,000 years, we got to eight billion people. How do we get there? God said, oh, don't worry, trust me. I might depopulate the earth. I'm going to overpopulate the earth. Trust me, you'll catch up. <laughs> you'll be fruitful and multiply. Trust me, you'll get to 8 billion pretty quick. And we did. Boom. So, pandemics happen. And they do. And this is not the worst of it. The best and the worst is yet to come. If you read your Bible, the way I read my Bible, it's not supposed to get better. Yeah. It's not suppo- if it's getting better... Either the Bible's lying or I'm further from the last days than I thought. <laughs> the church should be the ones going like, like, a, good, like a good Northeasterner. That's about right. <laughs> a good Mainer, a good New Hampshire guy. That's upstate New York. That's about right. Yeah, about right. When you read the Bible, when you get to the end of the book, who talks like that? That's about right. Dick Colby talks like that. <laughs> Mike White ripped the door off the mission's office. You know those mag- mag- magnetic doors? Yeah. They're like sealed. He took that off the hinge. This is Mike White. 675 pounds, Mike White. Hands like my kneecaps, Mike White. Oh, took the door off. Dick Colby walked up and said, who did that? He said, Mike White goes, that's about right. And walked away. <laughs> and walked away. Just like that. Flat out. But the church should be that way. We should not be panicking. We should be preparing. If it's getting worse, we're like, that's about right. But when we're panicking, it's because we don't believe what he said. Truthfully. And all these guys saying, it's going to get better. You know, what book are you reading? You must have the crib notes for another book. Or you got, you're, you're, you're different religion. Have you read the end? Have you read the end of the Bible, especially the Johannian and Petrine epistles? Have you read them? Oh, you haven't read the Bible. You've heard about God. I see. Somebody said that God is this. As soon as, as, soon as I hear a sentence begin like that, I just stop talking. I'm like, okay. This person, First Peter three fifteen, give it. A reasonable answer for the hope that is within you. When you begin the conversation with somebody who says, we're not reasonable anymore. (laughs) What? Really? Somebody said, now come back with, somebody said you're a complete jackass. (laughs) Let me correct myself. I don't always say that. I rarely say that. Okay, sometimes. But still, you know, we, we, we we are the push of religion. You know, there's people say things to Christians they would never say to a Hindu, they would never say to a Muslim. They get, they get bold with us. You guys are a bunch of jerks. Try that with Hinduism. Sikhs will finish you. Or try that with, or try that with a, a Muslim. Try that with a Muni. They wouldn't let you get away with that. But Christians, you know, we're a soft target. <laughs> you stab us right in the throat. Yeah, you Christians are... Okay. All right. You know why? Because we don't have to defend God. God defends us. 
We're the only religion where God defends us. We don't, I'm not out here protecting Allah. God is protecting me. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, we are kept by the power of God. Right. I don't defend God. I, I speak about God, but I don't defend him. I don't have to defend God. If I'm speaking about thinking about what God is doing in my life and who God is, but I'm not going to defend him against you. Like, hey, you know what? You can't attack my God. I've been doing it for centuries. And when you're dead, they'll keep doing it. So, anyway. Once I begin to believe what God says about my brothers and sisters in the church, now I have a message for the world. That was the greatest Bible track in the church, was the way the church treated the church. I'll close with this. In the New Testament, you'll see this in the epistle a lot, one another, right? The one another verses, about 36 of them. One another, one another. You know the number one thing that all the New Testament says about one another? It's love. Mm-hmm. More than the majority of the one another's are love. So the number one responsibility I have toward my brother and sister in the church is to love you unconditionally. In the church, that's my point. What's my call? To love the brethren. Hebrews 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Number one thing. Number one thing. Uh, Besides tolerating, forgiving, if I'm loving, in Ephesians chapter 4, 16, I'm building. I'm building the body of Christ. How do, I, how do I do that? I can't flatter you. Hey, it's a nice jacket there. Beautiful haircut. No, just love you unconditionally. I do more to build the church of God when I love you unconditionally than anything else I do. That was the track that drew people left and right to join the church in the first century. I mean, think about it. They didn't have epistles. The writings of Jesus Christ had not been written yet. Most of what Christ said was spoken in the beginning of the first century church by oral tradition. So all they had was basically apostles speaking about things they heard from Jesus Christ, right? And they had the writings of the prophets. That was all their messages were. So when Peter is preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and 4 and 5, that's all he's talking. So you see all those Old Testament verses in Acts chapter 2. It was a very narrow Bible. And there was no really worship service. The average first century New Testament church was prayers, the gospel, and fellowship, the love feast. That was it. It was a very interesting, almost boring service, but it was long. It was like 20 minutes. It was like hours of doing this. And you know what they did the most, more than praying and more than preaching, was loving on each other. They were known, but those are the guys, that, that, that the followers of Christ who were loving on each other. And I want to be loved like that. People were joined. The one of the church grew to 5,000 men. The count for 3,000 and 5,000 is actually only the men. So when it says the New Testament, the Jerusalem church was 5,000, that was a man count. Let's assume half of them are married. The, the first Jerusalem, Peter's first church could have been 10,000. It might have been the first mega church. It might have been 10,000 people. Women and children counted. And what drew them with that narrow bit of Bible, the writings of the prophets, the oral tradition of Christ, really, and just prayer. They didn't really have any songs. There was no, there was no hill song back then. So they're just rocking what they got. This is whatever they, most of the songs that they sang in church were actually songs from Judaism. Yeah. They imported the Psalms and that became the song. So that, that was a, and a lot of prayer. But they would be together for hours. How and how? Love. It was the foundation of the first century church. How many churches do you go to have a love conference? It's always power and deliverance and there's no love. I'm going to have all weekend at the love conference. No, no, we don't have that, do we? <laughs> the 
TV preachers. So when's the last time we have a TV preacher preach on the love of God? They're encouraging. They're motivational. Hmm? But where do you hear about that word? It's like a dirty word. You know why they don't talk about it? Because nobody is experiencing it. What you experience is what comes out of your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? That's what they're saying. But God speaks to, about himself. God speaks to me about me. And I can trust what he says about me because I trust what he says about himself. And because I can trust what he says about himself, I can trust that he can say it also about you because you're just like me. And once I can trust that it can work for, you, for me and work for you, it can work for all of them. And that's what, that's what 2 Peter 3.18 looks like, growing looks like. Not in how much you're memorizing Isaiah. I memorized the whole book of Isaiah. Congratulations. And 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, you have not love, guess what? You got nothing. You know? You got nothing. So, you got Benjamin, but you got nothing. <laughs> Son of my right hand. Benjamin. A lot, I know a lot of Benjamins and a lot of Noahs. I know a lot of Benjamins and Noahs. Awesome names. None like those two. Um, true. I don't know a lot of Ronaldo's though. That's true. Oh. And I only know one Omai. I'm here from Bal- with Baltimore. From Baltimore with Omai. He serves with me in a church in Owings Mills. He's in Bible school. 